Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us today as we are taking a break from the Gospel of John doing a Christmas series called What If? Uh, and as we begin this morning, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are two people in this congregation that are should be considered American royalty. Now, you might be thinking, we don't have you know, monarchs and kings and queens. But if we did, there are two people in this congregation that are related to people that are pretty foundational to the founding and the beginning of this country, one of which is yours truly. Maybe. And I say that because earlier this year, I was at this pastor's gathering here in Raleigh. There was another pastor who came in and spoke. He's a pastor in uh, the Texas area. And he has the last name as me, Dotson. So we get talking, and I'm like, you know, there is a slight chance, because Dotson's, you know, somewhat of a unique last name, that somewhere down the line, you and I might actually be related. And so we start talking, and he starts to tell me a very interesting fact, that years ago, his grandfather did a very extensive genealogy found, the family tree thing, because his grandfather, all these charts and these maps, and they found uh, that he and him, because his grandfather is, obviously, was related to a man by the name of John Dodds, D-O-D-D-S, who came on the Mayflower. Okay, so here's a picture of the Mayflower. Uh, well, a rendering because they didn't have some research back then. So see this. Now, that came, his name was D-O-D-D-S. Uh, I was doing some research on the Mayflower. It was the ship that came to settle, uh, to create the first permanent colony uh, in what's now known as the United States. Almost half the people on the ship died on the way over, partially just from the voyage. Other, others, when they landed here, they actually had to stay on the ship for three months as they would send people back and forth to create houses and things for people to live in. So a lot of them actually didn't make it, but John Dodds did. Now, I don't remember why he said that he eventually changed his name to Dotson, but I'm going to go with the fact that I might be related to this man, so therefore, I clearly am related to someone who came over on the Mayflower, okay? So from now on, when you picture the Mayflower, picture this. There's me, chilling by the 1600s or whatever, up in New England. Now, second person has to do with some of the presidents of the United States of America. And so on your right is John Adams. He was the second president of the United States. And on his left, or on your left, if you're looking at the screen, is John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States. And that John Quincy Adams is John Adams' son. Now, you may or may not know this. We actually have a John Quincy Adams who comes to this church. I was going to have him raise his hand, but he's serving in kids this morning. Okay, so if you have a kid, when you go, but he also tell him, I'm so, it's so late. And so the next time you miss, it'll totally Adams and John Quincy Adams. I want you to picture this. <laughs> so there is John Adams and his son, Nate, American, this. So there is John Adams and his son, Nate, American royalty in your midst. You're welcome. Now, I share that because today we're kicking off a series called What If? We're going to be looking at some of the uh, kind of the foundational themes or some of the big themes in the, around the birth story of Jesus, uh, the genealogy of Jesus this week. Next week is what if Mary was a virgin? What does that actually mean for us? Uh, the third week is what if John paved the way for Jesus, John the Baptist and his birth story? And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the question of what if God so loved the world? How would we know? And so today we'll be in Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and uh, uh, pull one out. It'll be in the seat back in front of you, page 855 there. Uh, now today we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. Now it's interesting, something significant happens uh, when you meet, whether your uh, partner, your girlfriend, boyfriend, your spouse, a really good friend or a roommate, right? When you meet their family, something happens where things begin to make more sense. Maybe some of the things that they say. Uh, maybe some of their mannerisms, some of their, like, it's like, oh, I see why you look like this, why you do this, because your family also does this thing. 
Now, in our culture today, genealogies are not that big of a deal, generally speaking. Uh, typically for us, we use things like 23andMe or, or the various different ones where you can like do the DNA test and you kind of see your heritage. Like for us, genealogies are mostly just heritage. Where did I come from? Um, that is not true for the ancient world. For the ancient world, genealogies were a big deal. So they were not just your heritage, but they also had significant influence on your inheritance, uh, your legitimacy in society, and your rights. So your class in society, uh, what privileges you have in the ancient world. If two people committed a crime against one another, someone of a higher class would have a severely less punishment than someone from a lower class. All of these things. It's not maybe the best modern example, but you can kind of think of it as your resume. Instead of how much money you make, the assets you own, or your job history, what you would present is your genealogy, and hopefully your genealogy is a good thing. It is a major deal, which is why Matthew begins his gospel talking about the genealogy of Jesus. Now today, I probably should have wore some glasses and a sweater vest, just to be honest. This is going to be much more about me teaching than preaching to you. I'm going to share with you a lot of information that you and I miss. Um, this is, it's not going to go over your head, but you're going to have to listen because it's maybe not going to be the most rigorous or uh, entertaining sermon this morning. But my guess is over the next couple of minutes, when we get to the end of this, you and I will be amazed at the beauty of Jesus and all that God has done. And so let's read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here is how Matthew begins his gospel. It says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, in our uh, English translations, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is 16 verses. Uh, in the Greek, it is eight verses, and it actually is summarizing the entire Bible so far, the entire, entire Old Testament, or in their context, the Hebrew Bible. It talks about some of the major players. It talks about Jesus. It talks about Abraham. It talks about David. And it also talks about Adam. Now, you might be saying, I don't see Adam in there. What, what do you mean? Well, interestingly enough, and again, in our translation, it says an account of the genealogy. Uh, in the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, again, just as a side note, uh, by the time the first century came around, most of the people you know, in the Roman Empire and also Jews spoke Greek. And so Matthew and many of the New Testament scholars also spoke Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was originally written in. But Greek was kind of the common language of the day. And so using the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, or the Greek translation, yeah, of the Hebrew Bible, uh, there is a word called Biblos Geneseos, and it only occurs twice in the Old Testament in Greek. One is in Genesis chapter two, verses four, uh, chapter two, verse four, where it talks about the creation of the heavens and the earth. And the other is in Genesis chapter five, verse one, where it talks about the creation of human beings of Adam and Eve. And so what Matthew is doing here by using that same word, Biblos Geneseos, is he's saying that just as God has established all of creation, and just as God has established, uh, established human beings, uh, God's creation has now come in the form of a man. Or put another way, what began with Adam and Eve, which continued in the covenant promises of Abraham, which we'll look at in a second, and went through the messianic royal line of David, is now being fulfilled in Jesus. Or put another way, Jesus, again, is in the messianic royal line of David, which will bring about the, uh, the blessings given to Abraham that were originally promised in the beginning to Adam. Or put another way, something we say here often, and you see this in the genealogy, that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're going to see this here. It is a unified story. It is abundantly clear that the New Testament authors, authors clearly believe that all of Israel's history, all of the Hebrew Bible history was pointing towards the promised hope and the Messiah, which they believed is Jesus. 
And that's what we see here. Uh, in fact, if you look back at the genealogy, I already counted it for you, so you, you, you don't have to count. If you don't believe me, you can. Uh, you'll see in these first 17 verses, uh, it is broken up into three sections of names. Uh, it's actually broken up into three sections of 14. Uh, now, to be fair, this is not a, an exhaustive list of Jesus' genealogy. Uh, names are clearly left out. Uh, this is not a sleight of hand by Matthew. This is how things worked in the ancient world. People would have known that, you know, he doesn't have everybody's name in there. But Matthew includes these names and in this order for theological reasons, again, that the original readers would have been comfortable with. Uh, one of the reasons, if you are familiar with the Hebrew Bible, is that seven is a significant number all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, now, seven could be completeness or perfection. Personally, I think completeness better encapsulates what's going on. And if you're familiar with the poetic narrative in Genesis chapter one of the creation story, it talks about God who's creating things, again, in the narrative in a seven-day cycle. And what happens on the seventh day, because God has completed, he rests. The work is done. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you see this theme of seven appear over and over and over again. So when you have three sets of 14, you could also divide that up into six sets of seven. What Matthew is trying to do here is he's trying to show us that Jesus is the inauguration of the seventh era. That completeness is now coming. Now, that being said, this genealogy is not supposed to be a fairy tale. Though he doesn't include everybody's names, he includes real historical figures, uh, many of which you can read about in the Hebrew Bible. And again, Matthew is doing this to show us that the Hebrew Bible is finding its fulfillment in Jesus. And like I said, in the ancient world, genealogies were a big deal, which means if you've ever read the Old Testament, you see genealogies all over the place. Now, I want to just point this out to help us understand what's going on here. Uh, genealogies are important in the Hebrew Bible. Now, the Hebrew Bible uh, can also be referred to as the Tanakh. Now, that is just an English word, to, uh, and the Hebrew also didn't have vowels, so it just actually means T and K. We put A's in there so we can read it. Uh, the Hebrew Bible is, is um, divided up into three se uh, separate uh, divisions, if you will. You have the Torah, which is the law and the instructions. You have the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. These are the English translations. And then you have the Ketavim, which is the writings or the wisdom literature. And so sometimes in the New Testament, you see Jesus or other people talk about the law and the prophets or the Psalms or the wisdom. He's talking about the Hebrew Bible. Now, here's why this is significant. Uh, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, is actually in a different order than our English translations of the Old Testament. Same books, same contents. It's just in a different order. So in our Old Testament, uh, the prophets are last. And so the last book in your English Bible is Malachi. The last book of the Hebrew Bible is not the prophets, but it's actually more of the, uh, or the writings and the wisdom. And the Hebrew Bible actually ends with Chronicles, which is first and second Chronicles. Now, why is this significant? Well, although there are genealogies all throughout the Hebrew Bible, there are two books in particular where you see the most amount of detailed genealogies, which of course are Genesis. So Genesis, you get a lot of names, and it, then it focuses in on Abraham, Abraham and his family. So if you're familiar with Genesis, you get a lot of names, but the focus is, let's get through all these names and talk to you about Abraham. And then the second book where you see the most amount of genealogies is Chronicles. And in Chronicles, again, you get even more names because more time has passed, but they're all very quick until it focuses in on David and David's family and his royal line and focus specifically on the story of King David. 
And so even with this order, by talking about Abraham and David, Matthew is showing us in verse 1 that all of the Hebrew scriptures and even the genealogies in the Hebrew scriptures find their fulfillment in Jesus from beginning, Genesis, to the end, Chronicles, right? And this is all in just verse 1. Right? There's more that could be said, but I don't know if you want to be here all day, and so let's continue. Matthew chapter 1, again, let's go to verse 2. says this, Abraham. Now, let's stop there. Okay, now, this is the last time I'll do this, and then we'll move a little bit quicker. If you're not familiar with Abraham, Abraham and his family were chosen by God in Genesis. There's been a lot of evil and suffering and unwise decisions in human history. And so God chooses Abraham out of his grace. And he promises him this. There's more to the story, but I just want to read to you Genesis chapter 3 or chapter 12. It'll be on the screen. Here's what it says. It says, the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name was changed to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God is promising Abraham that he is going to do something through Abraham, of which will be a blessing, not just for Abraham's family, which becomes known as Israel, but for the entire world. And so again here, Matthew, by linking Jesus to Abraham, is bringing our intention back to God's rescue plan for the world. So Matthew said, I'm going to tell you about this guy who's going to bring the, uh, the blessings of Abraham to you. And so he wants us to see that Jesus is this long-awaited son of Abraham who will bring all of God's blessings to all of humanity. Now, the question is, how will that happen? Well, it will happen through the royal line of David, who is the second key figure in the genealogy. So let's get to David. Let's start in verse 2 through verse 6. Here's what it says. It says, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah and Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered, uh, fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David, the most prominent of all of Israelites, king. Now, something interesting is happening here that, again, to us is not a big deal, but in the first century would have stuck out in a not good way. Uh, what Matthew does is hidden in his genealogy is he actually also includes the names of women, which is not something you would do. In a patriarchal ancient world, women were seen as second-class citizens. They're not as significant. And not only that, again, because your genealogy is kind of like your resume, all your inheritance and rights and legal status pass through the father. So honestly, it's kind of irrelevant in an ancient world who your mother is, yet Matthew includes them. In fact, in these verses, he includes three, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. In verse 6, he's also going to talk about Uriah's wife, which we know as Bathsheba, if you're familiar with that story. And then, of course, he ends his genealogy talking about Mary. So he includes not one, not two, not three, any LeBron James, all right, five people, five women, four other than Mary in this genealogy. Now, here's the thing. This is not good propaganda. And by propaganda, I mean material that is trying to convince somebody to follow your cause. In fact, the Bible is terrible propaganda. It is full of people who make terrible decisions and do really dumb stuff, and yet God uses them anyway. Even King David, right, the greatest of all the kings, did some awful, awful things. 
And not only that, uh, Matthew doesn't even include maybe some of the matriarchs that you would assume. Maybe Eve or Rebecca or Sarah, Abraham's wife, or, um, or yeah, Leah, any of these people. Instead, he includes four women other than Mary, who, by the way, are not even Israelites. They're not even Israelites. So you have Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in verse 5, and then Uriah's wife, which is Bathsheba, Bathsheba in verse 6. Now, here's the thing. We know Rahab wasn't an Israelite. If you're familiar with the story when uh, the Israelites go to Jericho, she helps to a couple of the Israelite spies hide in her house. Uh, we know Ruth is a Moabite because it says explicitly in the text. Uh, we're not explicitly told Tamar's ethnicity, uh, but Jewish tradition has her as a Syrian proselyte, so a non-Jew who has converted and has followed the way of Israel. And then we don't know uh, Bathsheba's uh, ethnicity, but Uriah, her husband, was a Hittite, which most likely means she was a Hittite as well. So you have women. You have non-Israelite women. And then you have all of these women who are included have um, sexual histories attached to them. So Tamar, if you're familiar with that story in Genesis, is involved in incest. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba, though no fault of her own, has an affair with King David because essentially King David makes her. And then Ruth, we're not told, I mean, if you read the book of Ruth, she is a woman of high character and high integrity. So it's not necessarily that she has a checkered uh, sexual past, but the Moabites, at least according to the Israelites, were known for their sexual perversion. So you have women non-Israelite women that are bringing up sexual, um, not honoring God in sexual ways according to Hebrew custom, all looked down on, right? This is a bad list. It's a bad list. And of course, we could go through the issues with the men as well. And I just point out to say that to say, as you read this genealogy, if you don't think you belong in the family of God, join the club. Join the club. This genealogy is full of messed up, broken people who did not deserve God's grace, yet God gave it to them anyway. Now, the question for us becomes, well, I've messed up, I've screwed up, I have a lot of reasons why God should not invite me into the family. And so, how do I do this? How do I join God's family? What does it take for me to also be included in the family of God? Well, we do this by knowing and remembering that acceptance into God's family is not based on what you have done, but what Jesus has done for you. This is what Matthew's trying to show us, that all of these things are finding its culmination in this man named Jesus who has come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The point of Matthew's gospel and the narrative all the way to the end, which we'll read about in a second, is that this man has come to do for us and for Israel and for all humanity what we could not do for ourselves. It's not what you bring to the table. It's what Christ has done for you. I kind of think of it this way. If you're friends with Christina and I, Christina, my wife, everybody likes Christina. She's warm. She's funny. She's bubbly. She's nice. She's kind. She loves to serve people. Like she's an amazing human being, right? And then there's me. Okay. And so what, what really is going on here is that everybody just wants to be friends with Christina, but because she's married to me, you have to put up with me as well. So I have a bunch of friends, not because of what I've done, but simply by being associated with her. And she didn't even want to be with me. That's why she dumped me twice, right? I mean, it's just like, I got no hope here, but yet I made it, right? And it's, it's the same way for us with Christ. You are accepted or invited into his kingdom, not because of you, because of him. And so we need to celebrate and we need to understand. And even in this genealogy, Matthew is making this point for us. That's not full of great people. It's full of broken people who are looking for the future Messiah who has now come. And this man that Matthew says is Jesus. 
And so, if you continue going through the genealogy from verse 6 all the way through verse 16, uh, you will see that that Matthew walks us through uh, some of the major kings of Israel. Now, at some point in Israel's history, they split up into a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom was known as Judah. They were a little bit more faithful, and so they survived a little bit longer than the northern kingdom, but then even they went astray. And so ever since David, he goes through these kings, these lists, uh, the Israelites are eventually um, uh, overcome. Uh, They are taken. They are sent into exile. And although the Israelites, many of them now still live, at least in this writing, and back in the Jerusalem or the surrounding areas, they're still in exile because they're not in control. They've had various nations come and occupy them, and currently they are occupied by Rome. And so they are still awaiting this promised Messiah to come, and what Matthew is saying, the long-awaited one, is here. Now, if you're familiar with the story, we're going through the Gospel of Mark right now. Jesus is coming, and he's not acting like the Messiah they would have assumed that he would by coming by force, but he is this promised one that you've been waiting for, that you are still in exile hoping for. This Messiah is come. Now, again, this is not an existive list of Jesus' genealogy. It's done to make a point. But the other point that we see here is, again, that this genealogy is broken up into four, uh, th- uh, three sections of 14. Now, why is 14 so significant? Uh, well, within the Hebrew Bible, or sorry, within the Hebrew language, you don't have letters and numbers. You have letters, and each letter is an assigned a numerical value. Uh, And again, David here is so significant that he's mentioned twice in verse 6 because it all hinges on the royal line of David. Now, here's David's name in Hebrew. Uh, So it's three three letters. The first and the third letter are the same. And then the second letter is different. So the first and third letter in Hebrew is called a dalet. And the middle letter is called a wall. Now, if you put the math together, a dalet is worth four. And then the middle letter is worth six. So four plus six plus four is 14. The numerical value of David is 14. And so uh, Matthew uh, explicitly organizes this genealogy in the sections of 14 to show us that Jesus is linked to David both explicitly, like literally from the line of David, but also in the literary design of the list. He's trying to highlight, again, the one that you have been waiting for, the promised Messiah that is coming from the line of David is now here. He's here. Would you have eyes to see that the Messiah has come? Now, that being said, I'll share one more thing about this genealogy. Um, I know this is a lot of information, but we also know that Matthew not only made uh, numerical adjustments, in other other words, took some names out to keep the list at these numbers for a reason, but he also made uh, two um, uh, letter adjustments. He actually changes two of the names in the genealogy. Now, there's debate about why this happened. I'll talk about it in a second. But if you look at your English Bible, in verse 7, uh, the end of verse 7, it's, it, Asa is mentioned. And, and, the, and in verse 10, it says Ammon is mentioned. Now, Ammon and Asa were two, again, prominent kings of Judah and Israel. So, of course, they are mentioned. What's interesting is that in Matthew's writing, he changed the names. So, it's not in our English Bible, but in the Greek, it is not Asa, but Asaph. And it is not Ammon, but Amos. Now, who is Asaph and Amos? Now, Asaph was a poet, one of the primary poets in the book of Psalms. So it's bringing to mind the book of Psalms. 
And Amos was an Old Testament prophet. Even there's a book, uh, one of the Old Testament books is Amos. Now, there's, there is debate about why this happened. Uh, again, Greek letters are a little bit different. And so uh, did, did Matthew actually mean um, Asa and Amon? And so it's just the Greek kind of makes it look a little bit different. And so maybe there's a, a scribal error, uh, sorry. And it really is supposed to be Asa and Amon. That's one debate. And again, the people who translate our Bibles, they're brilliant. So there's reasons uh, why they have, they've left it or they've corrected it, you could say, uh, to Asa and Ammon. Or it could be that Matthew has done this on purpose. Now, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm of the opinion that Matthew has done this on purpose, that he has purposely changed two of the names. Now, again, Matthew's a Jew. The, uh, the Jewish scholars, they all would have known that Ma- this wasn't a mistake. They all would have known Matthew did this. It's kind of like if I were to list you the names of the president's of the United States of America. Now, if you're like me, you're like, I don't know the list. But if I said the 16th president, right? Abraham Lincoln, right? If I were to go through the list of presidents and for the 16th president, I said Thomas Edison, you would all know that that's wrong. Like you, that would all, you would all question like, why are you doing that? Uh, everyone knows that's not true. And it would assume you meant to say Abraham Lincoln. And what seems to be happening here, if Matthew's done this on purpose, which I clearly believe he has, he's brilliant. He was Hebrew. He knows who the kings are. All the people reading this know who the kings were. It seems to be that he's again, trying to show us uh, that Jesus does not just fulfill Israel's royal hopes, but also the hopes of the Psalms, which is why he says Asaph, and of the prophets, which is why he includes Amos. Or put another way, Jesus, again, he is from the kingly line of, of, the, of the kings, of the royal kings, but he's also part of the rich tradition and worship of the prophecy and the Psalms. Right? Again, he structures his genealogy this way so that those who are reading it would think about all of the history of Israel and see when they meet Jesus for the first time that they would see again that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. That is what Mark or Matthew is communicating in this genealogy. And here's what's cool. You do not have to actually believe that Jesus is God himself to think this, to know this is true, right? It is abundantly clear. You could say maybe all the New Testament writers are wrong. Fair. But to them, this Messiah, the one who was prophesied about and waited on and yearned for has come in the man of Jesus. Now, I also want to say this. This is not some secret code. Now, for us, it's like, oh, this is a lot of interesting stuff. How did you figure this out? Well, the reality is if you were a first century Jew, all of these things would have just come to your mind because it's your context and it is your culture. It's not a secret. I don't know if any of you have ever read or watched the movie, The Da Vinci Code. Uh, Historically, I mean, the movie is fine. I guess I haven't watched it, but it is terrible history. Like, because they present it as there are additional books uh, that were written in the second century or in the intermediary period between the Old Testament and before Jesus came, which was a 400 year period uh, that the church is trying to secretly hide and they don't want people to know about. It's not a secret. There is a lot of extra biblical literature out there for various reasons we won't get into this morning are not part of the Bible, right? This is not a secret that Matthew is clearly trying to communicate that Jesus is the long awaited one. Now, here's what's cool. Here's the last thing I'll share uh, this morning. I want to point out to you, not just how Matthew's gospel begins, which as we have seen, but I want to point out to you how Matthew's gospel ends. 
That's one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. In Matthew 28, it'll be on the screen. Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's about to ascend back into heaven. And so in this passage, it just mentions his immediate disciples. But we know from other passages like in Acts that there are a group of people, not just Jesus' disciples. But there are a group of people coming to see Jesus and meet Jesus and hear from Jesus one final time before Jesus ascends back into heaven as we await for him to come a second time. And here's what he tells his disciples. It says this in verse 16. It says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Isn't that crazy? Like, bro, I'm dead. I'm not dead anymore. But some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, apprentices, followers of me of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what is known as the Great Commission. Jesus is telling his followers to spread his hope, his grace with the world, and to invite people to be part of my kingdom. Now, this is how Matthew's gospel ends. So let's ask the question, Matthew, uh, his gospel was primarily written with a Jewish audience in mind who, again, would have known their Hebrew Bibles. So we should ask ourselves, well, how does Chronicles end, right? How does the Hebrew Bible end? Well, the Hebrew Bible ends, it'll again, it'll be on the screen in 2 Chronicles, verse 36, the last two verses uh, in the Hebrew Bible. What's going on here is that the Israelites have been um, exiled and overtaken yet again. Um, And at this point, they are never going to have their own sovereignty over Israel again. They're always going to be in exile. They're always going to be ruled by somebody else. And here's what it says. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, so again, not an Israelite. He's the king of Persia who has overtaken the Israelites. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. He was the one who was going to, with with King Cyrus's blessing, uh, allow many of the Israelites to move back into Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple that had been destroyed. So through the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord spoken through uh, Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of Cyrus, uh, of King Cyrus of Persia, to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also put it in writing. This is what the king of Cyrus of Persia says. Here's how the Hebrew Bible ends. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all, king, all the kingdoms of earth and has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem, in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord his God be with him. Now again, Jesus is steeped in the Hebrew Bible. His final declaration to his disciples is not just some random rah-rah speech. He's trying to see that he is the fulfillment that has come. Here's the great similarity between the Great Commission and what Cyrus says, right? Um, uh, They are both giving a declaration of authority that I'm in charge here. They both give the charge to go. Uh, And what are they supposed to do? To build a house in the Old Testament, to build a house of the Lord. For Jesus, again, it's not just about a physical place. It's about the entire world. Now we are told to go build his kingdom. And they are both promised that God's presence would be with them that God will be with you as you build my house or as you build my kingdom. Put another way, that Matthew begins and ends his gospel with the beginning and the ending of the entire Hebrew Bible, Genesis to Chronicles. And he's tying all of it together in the person of Jesus, who is the beginning and the end. 
He is the fulfillment of all things promised by God. He is the completion who has come. He is the new Genesis. Literally, the gospel of Matthew starts the book of Genesis. That's how you can translate it. He is the new creation. He, of course, is the new Cyrus, only he is greater because he is perfect. He is the son of God and his authority actually extends. Unlike Cyrus, his authority actually extends over all of the earth and all of creation. And so as I close, I say all this to say this, that if Jesus came from Abraham, his promises are true. As you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, if he is the one, the long-awaited Messiah, that what he has come to do is what Matthew is saying, that God has come to invite you and me into his family. He has come to invite you and me into the genealogy of Jesus. And it's not because of what you have done to earn it. It's because of what this man has come to do on our behalf, that he is the hope of the entire world. He is the only one who lived a perfect life through the spirit of God himself, God incarnate who has come. He died the death you and I deserve to die. He resurrected to triumph over sin and evil and darkness to invite us into his kingdom. And we join into the family of God, not by trying really hard, not by showing our family tree, not by presenting our resume, not by saying, well, here's my gender. Here's how much I make. Here's the influence I have. Here's how many people follow me online, right? None of those things matter. He invites us into the kingdom from Jesus, who fulfills the promises from the royal line of David and the blessings of Abraham, that God would one day send somebody to be a blessing for the entire world. God has come to invite us into his family. And we do that not by looking at ourselves, but by looking at this man named Jesus who has come.